Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. Starting a series today on praise and worship. Yay. <laughs> I After I got you all excited last week by telling you the sermon I had was a weird one, uh, which is, looking back, probably not the right way to get you ready to really receive. Uh, I ended up getting more feedback from that message than maybe anything I've ever preached. People were so excited, and looking back, I think what you were most excited about was the fact that we're starting a series on praise and worship. Had a lot of... Uh, requests for that. Like I said last week, it seems like the time is right. And I'm just going to lay a little groundwork today, speak from the word, speak from my heart. But before I get into that, I do want to recommend a book to you. Many of you have already read it. Uh, It's called How to Worship a King by Zach Neese. Uh, Zach Neese is the praise and worship leader at Gateway Church in Austin, where Uh, Robert Morris is the pastor. I will refer to this book from time to time in this series, but I'm not going to preach through it. Uh, But if you would like a deep appreciation for the roots and the doctrinal underpinnings of praise and worship, uh, I think you'll have a hard time finding a better book on the subject than this one, How to Worship a King by Zach Neese. And, uh, but uh, like I said, I, I'm not going to preach through that book. There's some other things I want to do and certainly some other things I want to do today. And I want to start today by sharing with you a fairly well-known definition of worship. This is the definition as given by Archbishop William Temple. He was Arch- Archbishop of Canterbury in the Church of England in the first half of the 20th century. And uh, this, is, uh, this is the definition of worship. Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our nature is capable And therefore, the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. I know that was a little bit long, but I want to read it again. I want you to soak this in. Worship is the submission of all of our nature to God. It is the quickening of conscience by his holiness, the nourishment of mind with his truth, the purifying of imagination by his beauty, the opening of the heart to his love, the surrender of will to his purpose, and all of this gathered up in adoration, the most selfless emotion of which our our nature is capable, and therefore the chief remedy for that self-centeredness, which is our original sin and the source of all actual sin. Notice, after the details, the phrase, all this gathered up in adoration. That is the active, intentional component of worship with which we are most familiar. When we talk about worship, when we talk about praise and worship, we usually are referring to what we have already done this morning. The song service, the raising of the hands, the shouting, the clapping, uh, and it's good. But this is, uh, when we talk about, when he says, Worship, and I absolutely agree with this. That's why I love this definition. When he starts with, it's the, it's the submission of all of our nature to God. 
It's not just those moments. But it's all these other things, our conscience, our will, our mind, our, uh, everything else, gathered up in adoration. That's what I bring to the praise and worship service. What makes our times of corporate worship seem so empty sometimes is not the length of the song service or the shortness of the song service. It's not the volume. It's not the style. It's not the songs themselves. It's not the, the decor, the lack thereof. It's our failure to have anything to gather up in adoration. Instead of uh, the quickening of conscience by his holiness, we've allowed our conscience to be seared by unholy things. Instead of the nourishment of mind with his truth, our minds are either starved or fed with junk and lies. Instead of the purifying of imagination by his beauty, our, our imaginations have been polluted by some of the things that we've exposed them to or dwelt on. And instead of opening, really opening our heart to his love, we have pride and we have guilt. And so we refuse to truly accept God's love for us. And over and above all that, we demand autonomy, self-direction. All the while claiming to be submitted to his purpose. We can't be truly submitted if we are determined to be in charge of our own lives. So when we come to worship, necessarily then, it's going to be an event that is incongruous with the rest of our lives. We mean it. We think we mean it, but it has no connection with every other moment in the week where we're not actively praising and worshiping. And this, by the way, is the potential danger of what we might call the bells and whistles. If we have a well-appointed stage, uh, perfect lighting, perfect sound system, professional musicians, all these things can do a pretty good job of masking that disconnect. No matter how disconnected I am from God through the week, no matter how little I have done these other things, submitted my will to his purpose, allow my conscience to be purified, my imagination to be purified, all these things, if I come into a service that is overwhelming uh, my senses, I can be fooled into believing I have, had a, I have had a meaningful worship experience. When what I've really done is simply spent time in the presence of energetic people, in the presence of great music, great sound, even a true spiritual atmosphere. But for me, has it really been a connection? I've shared this a, uh, a few times before, but the best scriptural example I can think of this is the burnt offering, the sacrifice system of the Old Testament. And there were a number of different offerings. You remember all that exciting stuff in Leviticus, right? But the burnt offerings and sacrifices were the most distinct, focused acts of worship in the Old Testament. You want to acknowledge that you need mercy because of your sins, you bring a sacrifice. You want to express your love for God, you bring a sacrifice. And God says that a properly offered sacrifice is a sweet-smelling aroma, but that the same sacrifice offered improperly is a stench in his nostrils. This concept is repeated again and again in the prophets. God is rebuking Israel again and again, saying, your feasts mean nothing to me. Your sacred assemblies are meaningless. Stop. 
Stop slaughtering the bulls. Stop slaughtering the goats and the sheep and get your lives right. Seek justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly before me. And the frustration that's coming out there is because Israel was living in the midst of the nations exactly like those nations, except that they occasionally interrupted their lives, their thoroughly secular and hedonistic lives, to offer a sacrifice, to observe a special Sabbath, or to worship for a moment. And God's response was, if, that, if what takes place here in the temple courtyard or anywhere you happen to be offering a sacrifice, any place, any, anywhere you're happening to gather, if that is not, uh, if, if you're gathering specifically to worship me, but if that's not an expression, if it's not you gathering up your whole life, the rituals themselves are meaningless. You understand? They could come and do the rituals right, bring the right kind of animal at the right time and offer it in the correct way, but if what they were bringing was not an extension and an expression of all the moments and days leading up to that sacrifice, God wasn't going to receive it as a sacrifice. In Hebrews chapter 13... Let me read this. In verse 15. It says, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And uh, we used to sing a song. We bring the sacrifice of praise into the house. Uh, remember that one? And that's good. And, I, you know, I, I kind of like that song. And the sacrifice of praise is a, is a phrase that many of you, perhaps most of you, are familiar with. And we've talked before. What does that mean? What is the sacrifice of praise? And I've heard a number of answers to it, and they're not exclusive. I think there's a rightness about many of them. What is a sacrifice of praise? It means even though you're tired, you put in the effort of raising your hands. Even though... You want to stay home. You make the effort of coming to church. It means doing something that's outside of your comfort zone. Well, I'm not a hand raiser. Raise your hand anyway. Do it as a sacrifice. Well, I'm not really a singer. Sing anyway. Make the sacrifice. Uh, I'm not going to dance. Well, the Bible says dance, so you dance in obedience. And there's some truth to all this stuff. But mostly what it means here is that the ritual aspect of worship, the formal aspect of worship, is no longer the burnt offering, but the praise and worship portion of our worship service. And that ritual, those, those moments that we call praise and worship, in order to be true praise and worship, have to be connected to our wills, to our imaginations, to our conscience, to our minds, and to our hearts, to our daily lives. You have to see that what I'm saying here, is, this is different from, well, that means I'm not going to fake it because God is not honored by my singing if I don't really feel like singing. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying something completely different. You understand? I believe, in fact, I'll make the opposite case. I, I will. I'm just going to mention it today. We've talked about it a little bit. We've talked about it several times before but just never in a praise and worship series, which is, you know, God gives us very specific ways 
to praise him. Do this. Shout. Sing. Clap. Play instruments. Play all different instruments. And so we should do these things. And there's nothing in these instructions, nothing in these commands that talk about when you feel like it. We come together, we praise him because he's God and he deserves it. And we ultimately will benefit from speaking these things out, singing these things out, expressing ourselves out, despite how we feel. It's not just about, well, this is dishonest praise because I feel lousy. No, what makes it bad most of the time is when I'm sitting here praising God, it's very tough for me to really get into the moment saying, God, I worship you. You are all I need. You're the most important thing in my life. Lord, I love you more than anything. If I have not spent a week living that out, if I've been hating my neighbor, if I've been worshiping the almighty dollar, if I have been uh, saturating my mind with unholy things, and then I come in here and I tell God all about how important he is and how he's everything to me. If your life is completely disconnected from the truth of God, and you're looking out for number one, as they say, if your life, what the Bible calls your conversation, what we call your lifestyle, is indistinguishable from the unsaved world around you, then no matter how much you do feel like singing, it's going to ultimately be an empty worship experience. There are times when the, you know, the music is off, I mean off, technical difficulties, it's not our favorite song, any one of a number of things is not appealing to us. And then we walk out and say, praise and worship was kind of off today. And yet, the upright can worship wholeheartedly in the absence of all that perfection. Because God is still worthy of the praise, even when I don't feel like it. We talked about that last week, you know, this wholehearted worship with none of the the, the advantages we have here. Happening all the time, all around the world. Genuine worship, all I'm saying here, so far, all I'm saying is that genuine worship is not a matter of worship being an honest expression of your mood. Genuine worship is an expression of your life. It's an expression of your faith. Genuine worship is not an honest expression of your current mood. Genuine worship is supposed to be an expression of your life and your faith. Jesus, in his wilderness temptation, was off, well, let's just read this in uh, Matthew chapter 4. You remember, right after he was baptized by John, he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. The devil came to him three times, and the third time, beginning in verse 8, Matthew 4, 8. But he answered, this is Jesus, answered and said, uh, oh, sorry, uh, 4, 8. And the, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Now there's two words there, the worship and the serve. And I'm not big, you know, it's, it's rare for me. It's not a bad thing, 
uh, to do this. It's just not something that I do every week. I don't dig into every single Greek word of every uh, New Testament scripture I read, or I don't dig into the Hebrew or Aramaic word of every Old Testament scripture I read. But there are two words here, this worship and serve. They're different Greek words. Um, and the first one there, the worship, where he says, uh, you shall worship the Lord your God, that word is proskuneo. It's where we get the word prostrate, the bowing down. The word actually carries, may I think many of you have heard this, uh, it actually carries the meaning and the image of a dog licking his master's hand. To bow down, to kiss, to express reverence. That's the proskuneo. That's when you worship the Lord. The, the scripture that Jesus is quoting, quoting is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13, I think, where it actually says, fear the Lord. Jesus uses the word proskuneo, which we translate worship. And again, it's this bowing, this submissive posture, kissing of the hand. Where he says, and him only shall you serve, that Greek word as latriuo. Latriuo, which is where we get the word liturgy, the formal uh, order of service. And uh, it means to give gifts, to offer sacrifices. And again, it's, it's, our singing would be, would be our latriuo. And it's also our service, anything we do in, as part of our, our church worship. Proscuneo is where we must live daily for our latriuo to be meaningful. Is that, and you understand that? Our, our li- the, this, and we can kind of get that backwards because when we picture the licking of the hand, the reverence, we say, oh, that's worship, that's the worship service. No, that's the life. We live a life of submission and bowing down and the kissing of the master's hand so that when we come together, we latriuo together and it's an honest expression of our proscuneo, our service our liturgy becomes an honest expression of our worship-filled life. That's what Jesus is after. That's what our Father is after. Worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. So, one of the first things we need to look at is where does this heart of worship come from? If we're talking about a heart of worship that our uh, expression of worship needs to come from a heart of worship, how do we get there? And looking back at the Old Testament passages where God is rejecting the sacrifices and rebuking Israel, a lot of it came down to simple obedience and disobedience. Living like the devil or living like the world and then worshiping God. And when God addressed it, he, he, he always addressed that disconnect there. You know, if you're going to live like this, then don't come and worship like this because those things need to be connected. But what they couldn't seem, you know, they, they had a very legalistic mindset. Well, and why wouldn't they? They're living under the law. And the law couldn't change their hearts. And God, again, God knew what was happening. He was setting all this up for Jesus to come who can change our hearts, right? Thank God. But God desired relationship, and this is how he wanted Israel to process this, not through, the, not through the eyes of the law. If I do this, if I do this, if I do this, then God will do this, this, and this. God wanted them to know how much he loved them. He desired and deserved to be loved in the same way. And so one of the most piercing images he gave us, one of the most piercing messages, is in the book of Hosea. Do you remember Hosea, the prophet Hosea? 
He was the one that God told him, told Hosea to go and marry Gomer, this prostitute. To take her, you know she's a prostitute, but marry her, be good to her, love her perfectly, and then she's also going to cheat on you. And then I want you to go pursue her and win her back. This is a tough thing, but this is exactly what God wanted Hosea, what wanted Israel to see through this relationship with Hosea. Hosea represents God. Gomer represents Israel. We, you know, living, and this is kind of where we have to take stock of ourselves. Living like we want, pursuing the, the same things that the godless pursue, and then worshiping God and saying everything's okay, it would be kind of like me running around and enjoying the company and intimacy of different women, but coming home every night and telling my wife, but I love you. And if she complained, if you really loved me, you wouldn't be spending all this time and sharing your intimacy with these other women. And I could come back and I could say, but I've never told these women I loved them, and I've never married them. You're the only one I've given a ring to, baby. You going to be okay with that? No. The records show she's not okay with that. <laughs> How about it, men? Would you be okay with that attitude from your wife? No, you, you wouldn't, right? Man, if you would, we've got a real problem. Well, hey, open marriage, it's all the rage these days, right? If, 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 if your spouse regularly commits adultery, is that okay as long as your spouse, he or she, swears they'll never marry anyone else? It's not okay. So God says, and he says it repeatedly, and he says it, says it explicitly. How did I ever fail you? What did I ever do or fail to do to give you an excuse to treat me like this? What did I do to cause you not to love me? And then he reminds them, and he reminds us of everything he has done and why he has done it. So I think there are two things we can do on a regular basis to keep our hearts right, to develop, to foster, to cultivate a heart of worship. And one of them is this, count your blessings. Remember all that he has done for you. Remember everything he's promised. We read it Wednesday night, but we can look really quickly at Psalm 103. First two verses. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then it goes on to list some. And we can read through that whole psalm, and there's so much in there that causes me to worship, to praise, to thank him from the bottom of my heart. And when we look back at not just the scriptures, but the things he has done specifically in our lives. Psalm 136, by the way, I've done a message on that before. Psalm 136, that's the one where every other line is, uh, for his mercy endures forever. And it's a recitation of everything God had done in Israel's history. Remember when he did this? Remember when he did this? Remember when he did this? And it's and for his mercy endures forever. Remember when he, beat, when he defeated this army for us? For his mercy endures forever. For his mercy endures forever. It's, and it's good to go through that. Look through the history. Look through the scriptural history, but then look through your life. 
Has God done anything for you? And if he's done something, if you've been uh, blessed by a healing, a deliverance, a provision, those things can serve as anchors for us when things get tough, when we need to stir ourselves up. Another thing we can do is to pray specifically about it. And when I'm talking about, I'm talking about thing, another thing we can do to cultivate this heart of worship is to pray specifically about that. You know, we, we, uh, David, the ultimate psalmist, man after God's own heart, it was in him. He was truly gifted, and it, was, it seemed to be just in his uh, God-given nature to worship, to sing, to praise, to record God's praises. And I want you to look at Psalm 139. We will read this one together. Psalm 139, beginning in verse 1. Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so high. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you. But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works. That my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed. And in your book they were all written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious are your thoughts to me, O God! How great is the sum of them! If I should count them, they would be more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, bloodthirsty men, for they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with perfect hatred. I count them as my enemies. Now, so far, everything he's talking about is his, he's expressing some things here that were pretty foreign concepts to the world at that time especially living in the, you know, surrounded by pagan societies. You know, when, when you think about some of the conversations we read, uh, the, these battle plans, uh, one of my favorite ones is, well, I can't even remember who it was or when it was, but there's, the enemies are starting to lose the battle, and they say, well, maybe it's because we're fighting in the valley, and their God's stronger in the valley, so we'll move to the, the hilltops because maybe our God will be stronger on the hilltops. And this, is their, this was their concept of God, very geographical powers and things like this. David here is talking about a concept we take for granted, which is the omnipresence of God. One of the things that defines God is he is everywhere. What else is he talking about in this passage? He's talking about God's omniscience. You knew me before I even was. You knew what every one of my days was going to look like before I was even born, and you even know my thoughts. You know what I'm going to say before I say it. 
This is not how the ancient world viewed their gods. But David had this. He, he had a grasp on who God was. He also had an appreciation for God's love. This is this omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God, and yet, how often you, this God, think of me? I can't count your deliberate thoughts toward me, favorable thoughts. And then he says this, the last two verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. He has just gotten through right before that. The part I skipped explaining was his a prayer that he's prayed in other psalms. We've seen it, that you would slay the wicked. Not because David is afraid of the wicked, but in this, in this context, it's because he's offended that they are taking God's name in vain. This same God, he's just described this omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God who has all these favorable thoughts, who had David's whole life planned out, and that they would speak about you this way. I want you just to remove them from my presence because I find that offensive on your behalf. The perfect hatred he's describing, we might have difficulty with that. When Jesus says, love your enemies, pray for them to despitefully use you, all right? This is not what David's talking about. David's simply expressing his heart. I am opposed to this way of thinking. I'm opposed to this, uh, to this doctrine of these people. Remove them from my presence. I hate them on your behalf, meaning I'm opposed to everything that they are for. But then he has the presence of mind and the humility to say, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties and see if there is any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David knew that any, and this is again, this is a man with a heart to worship. He knew that any offensive way, any evil that was undealt with in his heart would hamper his ability to effectively worship God. So what am I saying? I'm saying don't trust yourself to know yourself as well as God does. Even if you came in and, wow, what a time of praise and worship we had this morning. This was one of those, let me interrupt what I'm saying here just long enough to say this. This is this, something I've shared before. I'm sorry, but uh, have you ever heard a preacher try to cajole you into worshiping harder by saying, come on now, if you don't like what's going on here, you're not going to enjoy heaven because this is all we do in heaven, 24-7. And have you ever been in the middle of a service where the preacher says that and you're thinking, uh, not that I don't want to go to heaven, but that doesn't sound like a really good deal right now. Am I the only one that's ever felt that way? Okay. Am, am I the only one that's ever felt that way? All right. Don's saying, yes, you're the only one that's ever felt that way. No, I'm not. And sometimes I want to stand up and say, this exact, this exact thing that's happening here in this building tonight, this is not what's going to be happening in heaven 24-7, all right? But every now and then you experience a moment during a praise and worship service where you're thinking, yeah, I could deal with a lot, lot more of this. 
And then there'll be somebody, and I'm going to cut you off so that you don't say something to me out here. Pastor Scott, the praise and worship was so, so sweet. Don't you think you grieved the Holy Spirit by letting it end? Shouldn't we? Since it was so sweet, since it was so good, uh, did we miss it by not just turning this into a praise and worship service? Listen, just because something is going really well doesn't mean we can't stop. Case in point, my sermons. Even when it's a good sermon, aren't you glad I stopped? And believe me, oh, now we're getting, yes, praise the Lord. Now we're going to get a vocal response. And God's in the sermon too, all right? Let's just don't get too twitchy about this stuff. The, the main thing is, if we come in with our hearts right and prepared for worship, like David here, be brave enough to pray that prayer. Now, here's, a, here's another remarkable thing about that prayer David prayed, okay? David had enough of a heart for God that as far as he knew, look, God, I've searched myself. I don't see an evil way in me, so I need you to search because you can see better than I can. And, and my heart is to be so clean before you that I can worship you more and more fully. Pray that prayer from your heart, though, and then don't, don't freak out when he shows you things. Hey, I'm glad you asked. Matt, let me show you something really ugly. He'll, give, he'll show these things. He'll point them out so that we can deal with them, repent of them, put them away. This is all part of submitting all of our nature to God. And when we do that, we will find more and more often we leave the praise and worship service thinking, wasn't praise and worship great? And do you know why it was great? Because your heart was right. I promise you, two people could come in this door who have been saved the exact same length of time, who have sat under the exact same teaching for the same length of time, but one of them's got a heart that's right, one of them's got a life that is, again, incongruous with all the things we're getting ready to do. One has been living like the world. I'm not saying they've been worshiping Satan in a closet. They have not been latriuoing uh, before an image of a goat, before a pentagram. They're just out there living like the world. And the other one is praying about decisions throughout the day. They're taking time to thank God for every good thing in their life. Again, it's, it's not that they're, they're not, they're working. They're raising their families, doing all the normal stuff, but they're doing it as unto the Lord. And they can come in to exactly the same praise and worship service. And if you ask them to be deadly honest on the way out, what'd you think of praise and worship? One would say, it's all right. And the other would say, man, wasn't the presence of the Lord real today? Don't trust yourself to know yourself as well as God does. When you ask him to show you the things, believe that he will, and allow him to show you those things through his word. When you read the word, look at it like a mirror. When you read God describing what the upright looks like, ask yourself, do I look like that? Use it as a mirror and... Allow yourself to be washed clean by the word. Isn't it interesting that the, the word serves both of those purposes? Shows us where the dirt is, offers us water for cleansing. Cleansing by the water of the word. And everything that we do along that line, we do in preparation for this intentional, formal time of worship that we typically or normally call the praise and worship service. Uh, and, and we'll expand on this next week. 
when you are at a uh, basketball game, football game, at least like in high school, when you kind of got an up-close view, you've, there's a group of students down front. Sometimes they've got pom-poms. Sometimes they're doing acrobatics. And they're yelling things. What do we call these people? The cheerleaders. Uh, and l- lately, though, I've heard them referred to as the cheer team or the cheer squad. And I know it's the same thing. But the idea used to be the cheerleaders would stand in front of the crowd and lead them in a cheer. They weren't the cheerers. They were the cheerleaders. We were all supposed to be doing those cheers with them. Not the flips and everything, maybe, but at least the words. And sometimes we did. Sometimes we felt goofy if we did, and mostly we didn't. Mostly, the cheer team was there for us to watch their cheers and clap. But let me tell you something. When a great play happened on the field, you didn't need the cheerleaders to get you fired up, did you? They had their cheers to do. Here's the touchdown cheer. Here's the hold them back. Here's the defense cheer, all these things. But when things got tense, the crowd on its own is in the moment. And they're screaming, they're cheering, and they're yelling for their team, trying to support, or they're just expressing their excitement. I'm not, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. I'm, I wasn't Mr. Yell My Head Off Scream kind of guy, and I always kind of get my back up a little bit at that argument. Well, you yell and scream and you go nuts at a sports event, so you need to yell and scream and go nuts in church too. I'm not the guy that yells and screams and goes nuts at a sports event. Okay? And there's some other parallels that we'll uh, make fun of or point out a little bit later in this series. But the point is, they aren't here to praise the Lord for you. They're here to lead you in praise and worship. You're not the audience. You're the worshipers. You're the praisers. They lead us in these songs. But when there is a... And this is something I think we just kind of need to train ourselves to do. When there's a moment between songs, you don't need to get quiet and wait for the next song. You can continue to praise him. When uh, whoever's leading the service, if Ange or somebody says, just praise him, that's your cue to say, thank you, God. Praise you, Lord. Hallelujah. You're a good God. We love you. Glory to your name, Lord Jesus. You've got words. You should have God's word in your heart. Let it come out then. Out loud. Use your mouth. Ah, Sometimes I don't know what to say. Use your prayer language. That's a perfect time just to praise him in the spirit. I do that every single week. And it doesn't need to be at the top of your lungs. But it does need to be with your mouth. Thank you, Lord. You're a good God. Hallelujah. Sing it to him. Say it to him. The silence makes me nervous. <laughs> Listen, I don't want to get legalistic about this either. I really don't. All right? Sometimes I think the slightest little thing makes you uncomfortable or the slightest little thing goes... Uh, some, some way you didn't think it, it, it should go, and what do you say? Well, I think that grieved the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not so sensitive. We're going to chase him away with a, with a breach of etiquette or something like that, okay? Holy Spirit is God, and he loves you. He loves us. He inhabits these praises. He's not going to run away the first time we do something or fail to do something in a certain way. It's mostly just how we react to it. But time of praise and worship should not just be, that's a great song the praise and worship team is singing, and I'm going to do a little bit to sing along, and then when, when they stop singing, I'm just going to stand there and wait for the next song. 
We should be, there should be the spontaneous cheers. Especially when the song we are singing has something specific. You know, when we talk about our God as victory over the grave, death is defeated. This doesn't excite you? Oh, yeah, but I already know it. Still excites me. When we are reminded while we're singing of why we are singing, it should never fail to excite us. And if it fails to excite us, I got news for you. It's not the praise and worship team's fault. It's because we don't come with our hearts prepared. I'm not saying they never blow it because you guys, no, I'm kidding. This is a great praise and worship team. If you cannot get into a praise and worship service with this praise and worship team, it is your problem. Believe me, it is your problem. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.